Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Director Paul Verhoeven was considered kind of an auteur in the 90s. He had just released Basic Instinct. It's this sexy, noir thriller with Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. Verhoeven is known for a slightly problematic combo of sex and violence. But it ended up being one of the highest grossing films of 1992. And by 1995, his next muse were the Showgirls of Las Vegas. The trailer for Showgirls is gritty, sexy. Okay, ladies, I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. And the opening scene is classic. The lead character, Nomi Malone, played by Elizabeth Berkley, is on the side of a highway. She's wearing a fringe leather jacket and high-waisted jeans. She's lugging around a single suitcase with everything she owns in it, flipping her thumb up, hitchhiking her way to Vegas. Where are you going? Vegas. Come on. Berkeley was hot off the teen sitcom Saved by the Bell, where she played the outspoken and nerdy Jesse Spano during its four-season run. And now, she was starring as a stripper-turned-showgirl in Paul Verhoeven's film. A lot of people were in it, like Gina Gershon and Kyle MacLachlan from Twin Peaks. But the movie's release came to a head when it hit theaters and bombed. Two thumbs down for Showgirls, the trashy Las Vegas melodrama with cornball dialogue and a recycled plot. Real Showgirls and Vegas got laughed at. It took a beat for fans to come around. The film was slapped with an NC-17 rating. There's lots of nudity. I actually think it's fabulous camp, but that's not how the world sort of took it, you know, when it came out. That's Peaches Christ, a world-renowned drag performer, MC, and artist. And the criticism didn't really rest on the filmmakers. The lead, Elizabeth Berkley, really took most of the heat. I mean, she was just ripped to shreds. And this is a young woman who had a very promising exciting career, and this was going to be a huge thing for her. And to, to have the, the failure, quote-unquote, of this film, the responsibility of it be laid at her feet, which it was. The guys who actually were responsible got to go on and make more movies. But she was the one who was blacklisted. She was the one who, you know, had to fight for her way back. It's unfair. But sadly, also not surprising. The film wouldn't be blasted forever, though. People like Peaches would be critical in catapulting the film to cult classic and quintessential camp. So this was designed um, to be, or at least uh, the way they were presenting it in the media was that this was going to be um, a real expose to the underbelly of Vegas, you know, showgirl lives. Expose? The film was far from it. But I mean, that's not why Peaches loved it anyway. It was the ridiculousness of it all. She would go on to pay tribute to it with 20 years of screenings at the theater she managed. And in 2016, started a drag musical rendition. 
Showgirls the film had a big impact on Peach's career, and she'll never forget how she first heard of it. I have to say that the person who told me to see it was my idol uh, and mentor, John Waters, who had seen it at the Cannes Film Festival. Yes, the John Waters. Pink flamingos, hairspray, that trademark pencil-thin mustache. And I was lucky enough to bring him to Penn State University as a student. Um, I grew up in Maryland and I worshipped him. This is way before John and I, you know, became friends or anything. I was just a nerdy kid who loved cult movies and loved his movies. And he had gone to the Cannes Film Festival and he had said, oh, wow, wait till you see this movie, Showgirls. If John Waters tells you to watch a movie, you watch the movie. And then I saw it and I was blown away. But what really spoke to Peaches was Berkeley's character, Nomi. She's over the top, unhinged. I mean... Even just on the car ride to Vegas, she has this very don't fuck with me vibe. Right away, she gets in that truck and, you know, pulls the knife on the guy. And it's like, what is happening? You can sit a little bit closer if you want. Minutes into the film, she's making friends with a girl at the casino, a black seamstress named Molly. Molly is trying to help Nomi, who is clearly pretty lost, just having been dropped off at this casino with no place to go. But instead of being grateful, she throws a plate full of french fries at Molly's face. So much for the kindness of strangers. Where are you from? Back east. From where back east? Different places. Like, something was just off about it. Like, who is this woman? I don't, I don't understand what's happening. And then I think by the time she throws the french fries, uh, I was hooked, so to speak. That melodramatic acting, the camp of it all, it's what made people like Peaches love the film. And me, I want to be included too. So I've described the movie as, as basically like being um, a drag queen movie. Uh, in many ways, they are so over the top and so camp and so fantastic that there's this sort of fantasy to it all. Like the sexuality is so pushed and even the way they treat each other, you know, is very sort of uh, camp. It's very dynasty. It's very ludicrous. It's kind of like a soap opera in film form. Nomi starts dancing at a strip club called Cheetahs, and even though she's clearly good at it, she's not someone who thinks small. She's looking for the next big thing. And through Molly, who works backstage as a seamstress for showgirls, Nomi finds out about this show at the Stardust called Goddess. The dancers in the show are in gold G-strings, and the lead, Adage, that's a fancy French way of saying the lead dancer, emerges from an erupting volcano. Like I said, it's very low-key. Ladies and gentlemen, the Stardust proudly presents Miss Crystal Connors. Crystal Connors is fawned over by the media. Fans, the casino owner, she's a star. Crystal Connors defines what Las Vegas is all about. It kicks off this rivalry between the two. Nomi watching on, admiring Crystal, but also wanting to be her. They're kind of frenemies, like they hate each other, but also flirt. It gets confusing sometimes, but you roll with it. There's an epic scene at the restaurant Spago. It's at the Caesars Palace with that ridiculous fake sky ceiling in it. And they're talking about the showgirl's diet. You know, brown rice and vegetables. It's worse than dog food. <laughs> it is. I've had dog food. 
You have? Mm-hmm. Long time ago. Doggy chow. I used to love doggy chow. <laughs> I used to love doggy chow, too. But the documentary film uh, that Jeffrey McHale made called You Don't Know Me, I watched that documentary and that Spago scene, they, they dissect it in the film and they really break it down. And so I never realized that what's happening is the film is showing you that they're switching places. That's where the real passing of the torch is happening between the two of them. And what is amazing about You Don't Know Me is they show you how the scene is cut so that and if you're a filmmaker, this gets really nerdy, but that Nomi's point of view and Nomi's angle where the camera's looking at her and where it's looking at Crystal, they actually cross the line, meaning the camera crosses the line so that by the end of the scene, they have swapped places. So there is something off beyond just the doggy child. They break a rule of cinema that actually is brilliant. I never noticed it before. It's clear Nomi wants to take her place as lead adage. And when Nomi doesn't make understudy, she's willing to play dirty to get it. Like, push Crystal down the stairs. She slipped. I saw it. Nomi wasn't even close to her. And just like that, Nomi gets her way. It's so extra, dude. It's not just the characters in the film. The costuming and the sets are gorgeous. The numbers are out of this world. That initial volcano number definitely has some Flintstone vibes. Later, there's an edgy number with motorcycles. They're in black leather and studs. And there's people driving bikes on the rafters. Peaches recreated it. The first year we did Showgirls, I came in on the back of a scooter, uh, uh, you know, and filled the whole auditorium with gas fumes. You know, not even thinking like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, you know, ride in on the back of a scooter, but I wanted to recreate the motorcycle moment, you know, and learned the hard way as people are like, you know, being asphyxiated like in the in the auditorium and they, they had to open all the doors, you know, like, you know, so nothing was ever safe or correct. Peaches and her amazing performances helped the film and, in turn, Vegas Showgirls gain the respect they deserve. I booked it in 1998, and then for the next 20 years, at least once a year, sometimes multiple times a year, uh, I celebrated the movie Showgirls. And I'm very proud to say that I'm a big part of why it became a cult movie. The 1995 film was intended to be this deep dive, gritty expose on showgirls, but it wasn't at all. In this episode, we dig into that and learn that the actual life of the showgirl was more nuanced than Nomi's, to say the least. We learn many dancers face discrimination, fighting for equity and respect on the stage. They had no job security, even after performing for pack houses for decades, the career of a showgirl could be over on a whim. But these women have something in common with the cult classic. It's in hindsight society is realizing their impact, how important the showgirl is to Las Vegas, but also how they've shaped its image around the world. I'm Brent Holmes. This is Spectacle Las Vegas. 
Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The word showgirl is out of touch, don't you think? At least Karen Fetter thinks so. It's interesting to me that the term showgirl is still used, right? Because, I mean, that name sort of derives from a period in time when the women really were just showing outfits or showing their bodies. Karen wrote a book titled The Folie Bergere in Las Vegas. It's a deep dive into the legacy of the longest cabaret show on the Las Vegas Strip. So it's safe to call her a showgirl's expert. She says there were literal laws around what women could and couldn't do with their bodies when it came to performing on stage. So there were laws that, this is like mid 20th century, where if women appeared on stage topless, they weren't allowed to move quickly or dance. And a lot of times they literally couldn't move at all. The curtain, you know, the women, the topless part of the show would be positioned. And then the curtains would come up and then the topless women would have to remain in whatever statuesque kind of statement they were making. And then the, the covered dancers could do their bits on stage. And so literally, show girl, that's where that phrase comes from. As she mentioned, she wrote a book about the Folie Bergère. When you think of the quintessential Vegas showgirl, you know, big feather hats, rhinestones for miles, mirrored staircases, that is the Folie Bergère. So the Folie Bergère, it first came to Las Vegas in 1959. The, the total look of the show, all the designers were European, Parisian men and women. And the show was um, designed and built in um, Paris and then shipped over to Las Vegas for us to use on our stage here. So it really was a true import. I assumed a French style review would be kind of scandalous in Las Vegas, Nevada. I mean, they're showing a lot of skin and this is America in the tail end of the 1950s. But actually, it was seen as sophisticated, and it wasn't just geared toward the guys. There was something for everyone. Besides the dancers, they had jugglers, contortionists, animal acts. The first probably two years of the Fully Berger show, the women weren't completely topless. They had pasties on. And then at some point, the pasties disappeared. I haven't identified what that year is but the pasties were fantastic. They weren't just round pasties, there were these like elaborate shapes, um, really decadent, wonderful, like you can't take your eyes off them pasties. Those sound like some pasties. 
But the show would be nothing without the dancers and showgirls themselves. Carrie Byers performed with the Foley for 12 years, till it shut down in 2009. But before she landed a spot in Foley, she had a hard time breaking into the industry. I've always been a dancer and I always wanted to be a professional dancer. But because of my height, I was coming across a lot of people that were like, sorry, you're just too tall. You don't fit into our costumes or whatever, because I'm actually almost 6'1". But then she caught a big break. She was roaming her university campus when she spotted a call for dancers, but not just any kind of dancers, tall women like her. She goes to the audition and she gets the gig. Obviously, she needs to go watch the show before she performs in it. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be a part of this. <laughs> like the, the big costumes and it was just, it was kind of, you know, old school Vegas production show, which is spectacular. Like there's the mirrored staircase and the girls come out of the ceiling and the big headdresses and the costumes that are just all rhinestones. And then we had tumblers and specialty acts. Like, wow, I'm going to be a part of this. Carrie was a showgirl in the 90s and early aughts. So right after Showgirls came out, and Foley, along with other shows, were obviously big inspiration for Verhoeven. But when you ask her if her job was anything like Showgirls, she laughs. Showgirls is iconic because it's so like over the top ridiculous. And I don't know a single Showgirl that has not seen it. And we all love it. We think it's hilarious. Right, I mean, I guess we didn't expect that to be a documentary. Even though, as a whole, the movie is total camp exaggeration, there are bits and pieces that hit home. Like the auditioning scene in the movie, where the producer is this misogynistic jerk critiquing and touching the women. Nose looks good. Thank you, Mr. Moss. Nice smile, too. Thank you, Mr. Moss. You know what, though? Your ears are sticking out. They are. Come back and see me when you get them fixed. In real life, those guys weren't known to be a walk in the park. You did, especially if you were going for a showgirl position, you did show up in a bra and G or a crop top and G because they wanted to see your midriff. And then at the end of the audition, there was like, probably I would say for the showgirl audition, four or five of us that were asked to go into the, the producer's office and do what they call the BC, which is the breast check, because it is a topless show. They would say, thank you very much. We'll call you. And producers kept a close eye on the dancers' bodies. You had to maintain your body weight and your body type and, you know, stay in shape, not only for looks, but because you're, you know, running around with 45 pounds on your head. You need to maintain your weight. Eat a lot of brown rice and vegetables. And stay indoors. I don't want to see any tan lines. And a lot of people, you know, went through the brown rice and vegetables phase or you know, tuna wrapped in lettuce phase or whatever. But there was nobody like breathing back down our backs telling us that's how we needed to eat and that's what we should be eating. But the whole rivalry between the dancers, that cutthroat over-the-top dynamic where they're willing to push their nemesis down a flight of stairs or throw beads on the stage to trip her. That didn't happen in reality. For the most part, we all got along and we took vacations together and we spent our day, we only had one day off a week and we spent it together and we went out to dinner after work. We were a very close-knit family at Follies. They were a family. So it's safe to say when Foley ended in 2009, 
Carrie was devastated. The show that was so dear to her and so dear to Vegas, it was just gone. Here's Karen Federer again. So the Foley Berger, its unique credit is that it's the longest running cabaret show on the Las Vegas Strip in history. And it's a continuous run. So 59 through 2009. So it's 50 years. The Jubilee, which is, I think it's the second longest running show in Vegas, um, was 35 years. And that was considered, you know, at the end of the Jubilee run, everyone's like, oh my God, this thing, you know, is so old, let's retire it. If we're going to talk about iconic Vegas shows, we can't just talk about Foley though. We have to touch on Jubilee as well, which is another show that Verhoeven clearly drew from. The volcano set in the film? That was 100% inspired by showrunner Don Arden, dubbed the master of disaster. He would create these ridiculous, huge production numbers based on wonderful disasters that happened in history. So, you know, of course, there's the sinking of the Titanic, there's Samson and Delilah. So an exploding volcano makes perfect sense. Don Arden took the Paris import and made it his own. His acts were distinctly Vegas, distinctly American, distinctly camp. I mean, disaster cabaret. Who knew that was a thing? His most well-known number was a narrative around the Titanic with an actual sinking ship in the background. The Jubilee stage, it was designed around this huge Titanic set piece that would like come up on stage through the iceberg, would come and then the Titanic would sink down below the stage and then there was a huge literal waterfall that would happen and you would see people coming, they, were these, they, they weren't real people, they were fake people, mannequins that were sitting in a boat, you'd see a boat float. I mean, the whole thing, it was very complicated, but totally campy now. The Jubilee show was luxury. When it opened in 81, it was rumored to cost 10 million bucks. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of costumes. The set pieces were incredibly outrageous and huge. The stage itself was built for this production, is huge. And there are two super big-named costume designers attached to Jubilee. Bob Mackie is one, and the second is Pete Manaphy. And they're considered sort of the leaders of the pack in establishing what cabaret looks like. And their budget was unlimited. Even though Jubilee was a spectacular show, some of the dancers felt Don Arden was too picky about the way things looked, about their appearance, and about their race. More on that next. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Don Arden invented the Las Vegas showgirl. At least that's what most anyone will tell you. He was known for having a meticulous eye for detail. He only wanted the best. The best costumes, the best stages, the best numbers, 
the best dancers. They used to say it, is that if your breast could fit into a champagne glass, you were the perfect size. Like I said, not true, but it gives you an idea of the physical form, that the ideal of the physical form he was shooting for. And in the 1980s, nearly a decade after integration, he was heralded for the diversity of his casts. At the time, the strip was still super white. And when you saw black or brown dancers in shows, they were typically white-skinned. Don Arden was central in including black bodies or, you know, Hispanic bodies too, you know, bodies of color in his shows. But to those black and brown dancers, it was uh, problematic. The caveat is that he wanted his bodies of color to be symmetrical on stage or to have their own production number because when he looked at someone a physical form on the stage he literally was seeing just a visual statement you know uh, that bothered his eye and so literally he would symmetrically position the bodies so that it made more sense to his eye so in a way the show was segregated but it was integrated too it's like they were separate but equal. I haven't heard that one before. He called this particular line of women the ebony line. And there were men and women, but they were all black. And so the ebony line, he inserted in the show in really specific numbers that were choreographed for them. They had their own costumes, their own choreographer, their own production number. Rolanda Jezzard was a dancer in Jubilee. She remembers when she was in her early 20s back in Philly, when she got the call to come out for a spot in the show. Then it was at the MGM Grand. This was the early 1980s. She packed up her entire life and moved to Las Vegas, and when she got here, they had her go into the light box to watch the show. It was not what she expected. The show that was segregated. And I, I was upset because I, didn't, I really didn't want to do it. I came from, like I said, Philadelphia Dance Company and, you know, studied and studied and studied, and I never experienced anything like that. Rolanda was in shock, but she was kind of stuck. She had already signed the contract to be in the Ebony line. Don Arden might have said the division was superficial about how the show looked, but it was clear to Rolanda that the segregated lines weren't just aesthetics. It was racist. It came down to opportunities, too, that clearly weren't split 50-50 with the white dancers. Rolanda says management at the time stopped her from advancing in her career. I said, I would like to understudy. And she would say to me, well, you know, I can't do that. And I asked her, I said, why? And she's like, well, you know why. You know, she would never actually come out and stay because the black girls can't do that. But I knew why. And speaking up didn't go over well. I only lasted there for six months. I got fired. And the reason why I got fired was because the white women, they would get new shoes a lot. And our line, which was the Ebony Guys and Girls, we didn't get new shoes like the other white girls. Her experience at Jubilee was rough. Rolanda was fired for speaking up without unemployment. But she would go on to break barriers in Las Vegas. 
She says she was the first Black dancer in the Lido de Paris, an iconic French review at the Stardust, and that she was also the first Black dancer for magicians Siegfried and Roy. And that was a big deal because nine times out of 10, the only way a Black dancer got cast is if they were replacing another Black dancer. So she paved a way for future dancers of color, but she still sees what she saw back in the 80s today. And not just in Vegas. You know, the Rockettes always have these shows during the holiday months. And not even, you know, not an Asian person, not a Latino person, just one, one person of color in the Rockettes after all these years. It pisses me off. In some ways, you could say the experience of the showgirl and the film Showgirls do have one thing in common. They weren't taken seriously. The Showgirls film took years to become a cult classic, largely thanks to people like Peaches who fought for it to get the credit it deserved. Now we take its status for granted, but in the beginning, people thought Peaches was nuts. That was 1998. And in fact, the booker at the time couldn't figure out why I wanted to book that film, you know, because all the midnight movie bookings back in the late 90s were, were, you know, old, you know, black and white movies, David Lynch films, you know, Taxi Driver, Eraserhead, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, they actually booked the movie Striptease. And I had to get back to them and say, no, 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 not the Demi Moore movie that's forgettable, that came out the same year that no one remembers. No, no, no. I want to book Showgirls. And they said, really? Okay. And Peaches really honored it. She hilariously recreated one of the sex scenes from the film with her friend. We built uh, a platform and put like a giant kiddie pool on the stage, filled it with water, and then glued a wig to her head. And I was the Kyle MacLachlan character. She was able to do this sort of aerobic, like, I, I can't even describe it. She was on my lap and I was wearing a big strap on and, and a nude bodysuit. And we recreated the pool scene, but with the water so that her wig was in the pool and she'd come out of the pool and be flailing that wig around. And the entire first 10 rows are getting splashed with water. I love there was a splash zone at the show for a recreation of the most awkward sex scene in cinema history. And she almost died doing it. Someone kind of slid out of the pool and like the lip, the plastic lip of the pool basically buckled under. So this cascade of water like went down the, from off the stage and into the pit where all of the electrical, you know, cords and wire, <laughs> wires were. And I'll never forget. And you see me kind of take a jolt of electricity. And then I say, I'm being electrocuted. Like, <laughs> like I tell the audience, like, I, 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 I might die, like, right now. I have to say, Peaches is incredible. But all laughs aside, Showgirls was seen as disposable. And because of Elizabeth Berkley starring in it, she was seen as disposable, too. Same with Carrie and Rolanda, who were deemed useful until they weren't. Their experience, their passion to entertain, Vegas never fully appreciated it. But both had a huge cultural impact. I mean, I think Carrie put it best. If you think of Vegas and you think of Elvis and Showgirls. And without women like Carrie and Rolanda, there would be no Showgirls. There would be no Vegas. Next time on Spectacle... 
Sexuality and women's bodies in particular have always featured prominently in the image Vegas sells to its eager vice vacationers. The reality is Las Vegas as a city actually has a lot of restrictions around sexuality and sex work. Obviously, illegal sex work happens everywhere, including Las Vegas. From billboards advertising nude women to the limos that will pick you up at your hotel on the Strip and deliver you to a desert brothel, Las Vegas might pretend sex work isn't work, but it's clearly core to the city's economy. I think that there is the the concern that, you know, you'll get too distracted by the power of breasts and that you will not continue to flush your money away. That's next time on Spectacle. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neonha Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. It was produced by Navani Otero. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Spectacle's senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hans Dale Sue. And special thanks to Tanner Robbins, Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? This episode of Spectacle is brought to you from... You can't take your eyes off them. Pasties.